Welcome to the In My Skin podcast, the podcast of the PRIDE program, which stands for Positive Racial Identity Development and Early Education out of the University of Pittsburgh's Office of Child Development within the School of Education. The work of the PRIDE program is to help dismantle the impact of racism in young children's lives by helping them develop a positive racial identity through working with the primary adults in their lives and creating fun, educational, cultural community spaces and events. I am your host of the In My Skin podcast and director of engagement of the PRIDE program, Medina Jackson. Here on In My Skin, we talk about the knowledge, wisdom, insights, experiences, research, and practices bringing race, early childhood, and Black children specifically into clearer focus. For more information about our program and exciting work, make sure to peruse our website, racepride.pit.edu. In honor of Women's Her Story Month, we have as our guest a beloved local Shiro here in Pittsburgh, Ms. Tamanika Howes. On this episode, we explore the fundamental question of what does it take to reach, engage, affirm, and teach Black children primarily through the lens of Freedom Schools? The Children's Defense Fund Freedom Schools program has its origins in the Mississippi Freedom Summer Project of 1964, first developed by the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, otherwise known as SNCC. It brought college students from around the country to Mississippi to secure justice and voting rights for Black citizens. These early freedom schools aimed at keeping Black children and youth safe and giving them rich educational experiences that were not offered in Mississippi's public schools. In a variety of makeshift settings, college student volunteers provided instruction in reading, writing, humanities, mathematics, and science, along with subjects not taught in Mississippi public schools, such as Black history and constitutional rights. All of their instruction was tailored to encourage children and youth to become independent thinkers, problem solvers, and agents of change in their own communities. The Children's Defense Fund opened the first two CDF Freedom School sites in 1995 to address the needs of children who lacked access to high-quality literacy programs during the summer. The CDF Freedom Schools program today is designed to improve reading, language skills, and interpersonal relationships, strengthen families, connect children to medical and other needed social services, and develop in all participants the skills needed to improve conditions for children and families in their communities. Now, with over 10,000 scholars served, almost 1,100 program staff trained, and 174 sites across 88 cities and 29 states, the CDF Freedom Schools program provides summer and after-school enrichment through a research-based and multicultural program model that supports K-12 scholars and their families through five essential components. High-quality academic and character-building enrichment, parent and family engagement, civic engagement and social action, intergenerational servant leadership, development, and nutrition, health, and mental health. In addition to a conversation with Ms. Howes about Freedom Schools, in her time with us, she shares the importance of parent power and tied to this why the work of the PRIDE program is and will always be needed. So, who is Ms. Howes? She is a community educator, parent and community mother, advocate, Pride Program Advisory Committee member, former local project director, consultant, and self-proclaimed ambassador for Freedom Schools. It is my hope that you feel the passion and fire of Ms. Howes. And to quote poet Sonia Sanchez, learn your fire, find it, and pass it on. 
Miss Tamanika Howes. How you doing today? Fantastic, terrific, and great. Yes. All right. All right. Well, we want to start things off with a little treat um, that Miss Howes brought with us, just giving us a little example of the Freedom School's way. So I'm going to kick it over to you. First, I want to say thank you very much for inviting me to talk about my life-changing experience with Freedom Schools. Um, I'd like to start off with something we could say in Freedom Schools. It's like I have a recognition, and usually there is it's a call and response, and the group would say recognize, but we don't have a group, so I just want to say uh, I have a recognition. And I'd like to recognize the Children's Defense Fund, Malik Bankston, who is the former executive director of the Kingsley Association, Carl Redwood, who is the former associate director of the Kingsley Association, Dr. Regina Holly, former principal at Lincoln Elementary School and the summer staff, Dr. Russell Patterson, Faison principal, Dr. Kyra Henderson, principal of Wild School in the Hill District, and all those who have been part, all that I mentioned have been partners with Freedom Schools. Um, and I cannot forget, will not forget, the fantastic, terrific, and great project directors, site coordinators, servant leaders, our parents and families, our scholars, our scholars are our children, and the foundation support. Wonderful. Thank you, Ms. Howes. Before we jump uh, deeply into um, Freedom Schools in general and your experience with Freedom Schools specifically, I want to start with a question that we do with every guest that we have here, and it's called lived experiences, right? So like I mentioned, you're a community educator and mother. You're a youth and parent advocate, right? Always centering community and education since I've known you. So I just want to know what lived experiences led you to this passion, interest, and work from as far back as you can remember? What were the the nuggets, the pathway, the journey that led you here? I think first and foremost was my mother, who was an example for me, uh, a woman who dropped out of high school in 11th grade to care for her ailing mother. But my mother laid a foundation for me in terms of loving children, advocating for children. Um, she advocated for us uh, in school. So she was, she was my foundation. Um, in elementary school, I went to an elementary school in the Hill District called Miller Elementary School. And once a week, we'd have library time. And I loved it. We would sit in a circle, and the librarian, she would read these stories. But I love the way she read, and I would just just would listen intently until one day, one day, she read the book Little Black Sambo. That was a game changer for me. She had one of my classmates, I remember it was one of the boys, run around in a circle until he was exhausted and just kind of collapsed on the floor. And she thought it was so funny. She uh, sent one of uh, my classmates up to get the gym teacher and she wanted to be reenacted. And so that day, I, I no longer had fondness for her, but I still, she was the one who introduced uh, reading to me. And um, so that was a game changer for me. So that was my real first taste, I think, of racism. Mm -hmm. uh, but I loved uh, reading, she introduced that to me. And then in high school, um, I came across a book in the library about Mary McLeod Bethune. That was it. That was a game changer for me. So that's when I knew I had 
a great interest um, in education. And I just tried to broaden my, my knowledge. But I didn't have much guidance in high school, but my mom still, she attended PTA meetings when I was in elementary school. She was a domestic worker, so she got paid day by day. And this is a woman who had to take, it wasn't buses then, it was streetcars. She would take two streetcars going to work in Mount Lebanon and um, come home tired. I would see her dragging up the street. She was so tired. But she would take days off to go to PTA meetings or we had school bazaars. So she was an advocate for us uh, in elementary school, did the same thing in high school. She set the tone that she wanted us to do better than what she and her, her peers were able to do. But I do remember seeing, now my mom didn't read to us. I don't remember that at all. But I remember the Jet magazines and Ebony magazines in our home. And that sparked my interest since I like to read, so I would look at those. But also, um, I got an early interest in civil rights, too, because then it was a black and white TV, and it wasn't remote. You would get up and change the channels. But uh, seeing what was happening in the South, in some kind of way, that that impacted me. And at that time, I know it's hard for folks to believe or understand, we weren't refrigerators. We had like what's called an ice box. So every day you had to get these big chunks of ice and put it in the, in the ice box. And um, so we would have to go grocery shopping like every day. So whatever was for dinner, you had to go get it that day. Mm-hmm. And there was time. There was a core office, Congress of Racial Equality on Center Avenue, and I would bypass that. And sometimes I would just go in and talk to them, whatever. And so they would give me information about what was going on in terms of our people. And I remember them saying, ask your mom if you can go to, I think it was Alabama, some some big national trip. And I think I'm getting off track. So I, I, I'll, I'll start with that. I'll, I'll get off track with that. I mean, I, I don't want to get off, off track. But there was an R in our community for us to do well in school. I remember the number man on the corner and he would say, okay, I want you to do good in school. We get to the crossing guard. The good in school, you know, always giving us words of encouragement. So that was kind of like a, a foundation for me. And later I joined, uh, in high school, I went to a program called Hill City uh, on Bedford Avenue in the Hill District. And I worked at a program called Urban Youth Action. Mm-hmm. So I started learning more then. And, I um, know you worked there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As a teenager, yeah. As a teenager, so the second year that it started, Urban Youth Action, that's when I, I worked there, and I think I was in charge of the education department, I believe. So, and, and I did hiring, mm-hmm. so that was a good uh, basis for me. But again, you know, my mom, she supported me in everything I did with that, and so I was very proud of what um, my mother did in, with us in school. So, you know, setting that groundwork, and later. Um, after high school, uh, moved to Homewood. And that's what, before then, uh, it's still my interest in, in civil rights. But coming from work from Hill City, there I, I must have gotten a flyer in high school or whatever, but at Ebenezer Baptist Church, there was a speaker um, by the name of Stokely Carmichael. Mm-hmm. And I went. And I left there leaving out going down the street and had to take the, uh, then it was a streetcar back to Homewood. 
and walked all the way down to Fifth Avenue. And I'm saying, bang, bang, beep, beep, and God with black power. <laughs> so yeah. all the way, so that 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 centered something in me. And so after graduating from high school, um, I got involved with an organization called Together Incorporated. So that's where my political consciousness came about. And we opened up a bookstore, Harambe Bookstore, on mm-hmm. Homewood Avenue. So people from across the, the, the city would come and shop at the, the bookstore. Keep in mind, there was a cultural movement going on. There was a, 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 a black movement going on, a black power movement going on. So a lot of conscious raising uh, was going on. So I was learning and growing then. And so I just started learning more and more there and being involved in those organizations. So that was part of my um, community aspect. And then I started being directly involved with youth. I kind of like did it on my own. I just remember at 18 years old, becoming an advocate for mm-hmm. children. I remember going into the schools. Uh, one child in particular, I went on behalf of her parent and had to speak with teachers or whatever. And sometimes the teachers and principals were were open to it, but I was a different person then, so I like pushed my way in and and advocated um, the best that I could. Uh, we organized uh, a student walkout. That was, <laughs> I had actually forgotten about that going back, uh, but uh, that was another thing, you know, organizing, working with students, and met a lot of students from Westinghouse High School, and those, uh, some of them became leaders. Later, I became involved in the Congress of African People, and I had uh, moved back um, to the Hill. So, but for Women's Her Story Month, March, I have to give a shout out of recognition, respect and appreciation to the moms, the grandmoms, the aunties, the community moms, and women who led by example for children, not just their children that they birthed, but children of the community. And certainly my mother was that example for me as being a mother of the community. So a shout out uh, to them. And um, so my education in terms, my involvement in advocacy with education continued. And later on, um, being involved with the Congress of African People, I remember my sister was the initiator and we organized what we call Liberation School. And it started out of our apartment on Frankstown Avenue in Homewood. Mm-hmm. And talk about the community response. We would have it on Saturday, every Saturday. Uh, the parents were involved. Everything was voluntary. Food, everything. Um, but we had some kind of connection with the University of Pittsburgh. And I remember uh, Curtis Porter was one of those, those persons. I don't remember the other people involved. But we were able to have uh, buses. And we took children from... Uh, we picked up children all across the city. The furthest I can remember was St. Clair Village. We'd have a busload coming from St. Clair. Mm-hmm. And so it Liberation school, school grew so large, we had to move it outside of our apartment. And so we had it in different places uh, in the community, never had to pay rent anywhere, uh, any supplies that we needed. You know, the family su- supplied it. Some of the brothers on the street who were doing things they might not have had any business doing, would make donations, and mm-hmm. so that went on for a, a, a couple of years, having a liberation school in Homewood. And then with CAP, um, we had African Free School at a community center on the Hill. So those were kind of like my foundations. And then later, um, after those programs fizzled out, and I got married, had children, and then I became you know advocating on behalf of my children. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in elementary school, my children went to the second best elementary school in the city for black children, and that was Madison Elementary. Mm -hmm. And led by example, what my mother did, got involved with the schools. And uh, Vivian Williams, shout out Women's Her Story Month, fantastic uh, principal. And so their experience at Madison was really good. But then it came time for them to go to mil uh, middle school. And at that time where I lived at, they would have had to have gone to, uh, no, they had to go to Prospect Middle School, one of the most racist schools in the city. Mm. And I remember that's when I met Barbara Sizemore. Mm. Shout out Women's Her Story Month, Dr. Barbara A. Sizemore, scholar, warrior, activist. And so Barbara had a big impact on my life as well. And she, Barbara would go across the country doing studies of high-performing um, African-American schools where children, African-American children were performing on a high level. And so the schools in Pittsburgh was um, van number one and Madison. And so uh, Barbara came, she said, uh, Tominika, what school do children go into? And I told her, she said, oh, we need to try to get them to go to another school because she recognized the leadership of, of one of my sons. And she was very concerned about them destroying yeah. his leadership abilities. And you know, I raised my, my kids to feel good about who they are and to stand up for themselves. Um, so I couldn't get them to go to another school. So I got, became very involved with Prospect, going back and forth to the school, dealing with the racism. And... Um, I think I was searching for a job at that point. And then I ran across a woman, uh, Marsha Snowden. And so I went in the, uh, then it, you all won't understand, there were, um, they come telephone books. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm looking for educate, you know, programs dealing with education. I remember telephone books. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so I came across one with uh, Allegheny Conference and met Marsha Snowden. I was telling her what was going on. And... So in discussion, she said, I'd like to hire you. And I'm like, really? And so I was hired to organize parents in the Hill. And I remember going back and forth to Prospect, um, even prior to that, dealing with the teachers there, you know, just the racism that was there. And the, the black kids coming from the Hill, it was a culture shock because my kids came from an all-black school, and then going to an integrated school was very yeah. different. And uh, there was a conf Confederate flag that flew proudly throughout the, you know, at this one house. And I don't think our kids realized what it was. I knew what it was. And, and so some of the uh, actions from the staff there was just horrendous. And then there was a principal, Bob, they selected Bob Pipkin to be the principal. So trying to get things, you know, coordinated there to, to work out um, for our youth. And then... Um, my other responsibility, not only organizing uh, parents, and that's one of the hardest tasks to do, is organizing mm -hmm. and organizing parents. And if we talk, when we talk about Freedom School, the model, the blueprint is SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating mm -hmm. Committee, when they have Freedom Summer. So that is the blueprint. But um, so I had an after school program for middle school uh, children. Loved it. I, I love working with children, period. And um, we got a space inside of Hill House and at no charge. Jim Henry then was the uh, uh, director of Hill House. 
and Carl Redwood was the assistant director. And I guess he saw the work I was doing with the after school program. And so when I, um, I left Prospect, they wanted me to stay on, but there were changes going on. And I said what needed to happen, and I relinquished that job because um, they wanted me to, to come on full-time in, with the school district. And I knew I would battle with the school district because I was always going back and forth with the school district. And I said, no, you need to have a parent who has children in the school to become the director, the leader, the organizer. Because mm-hmm. um, my kids had left Prospect, and I said, you need to have a parent. And I, I, I just backed away. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they ever hired a parent. I think that was a mistake that they made. Um they were really trying to make some some serious changes there. And Carl Redwood asked me to coordinate a program at Hill House to start an after-school program there. And that was K to 5, which I did. And that model uh, that we used there for the after-school program, the summer, summer camp, was based on a program Dr. Jerome Taylor had led, um, Values for Life. And I tell anybody, check out Dr. Jerome Teller at the Center for Family Excellence. If we talk about the studies that they have done about how far behind black children are, we think COVID, that our children are two years behind? No. Dr. Taylor, we are decades behind. It would take decades to catch up. Mm-hmm. And so the one thing I love what they did, it, at that time the program was called Right Start. And what a lot of people don't do when they – um, put together organizations or do grant writing for programs, they negate the people. They say, I think I know what is good for the people, so I put this together. And I know for a fact that what some people do to get money, they will use certain zip codes mm-hmm. and they'll get funded. You know, right. But um, what they did, under the leadership of Dr. Jerome Taylor is they went to the people and asked them, what is it that you want for your children? They did door-to-door knocking Mm -hmm. and asked them, what is it that you want for your children? And that's how the Values for Life uh, model came about. Um, So the head start at Hill House that used Values for Life. So Carl said, instead of us just trying to do something different, just use this. And what I did, I just modified it. And to this day, I have some of the children I had then who are parents now, Miss House, those values, how can I use them with my children? Or the one young woman reached out to me, she has a child care center. Well, two. Uh, the one mom had, I had her son in the after school program at camp, and her other son worked with us at summer camp. And she has uh, one of the best daycare centers um, in the city. But she reached out to me about the values for life. Uh, how she could use a model there. And another young woman I had as a student in the program, she now has a child care center and she wants to use Values for Life. But I told them, I, I think probably the best thing, so not to avoid copyright kind of things, is to contact Dr. Taylor. But it's a very good program. And I probably went on and on more <laughs> than I should have. Well, I think but. it's so, um, you know, at first it's no problem um, because, first of all, I mean, you're someone that um, is – fairly well-known amongst, I'd say, across community, educational space, but I don't know if everyone knows all that about you Mm -hmm. or your full story and just, like, the pieces and the nuggets and some of the things that you were saying about 
um, even the things that your mother did and how much she was an influence on you. That's something that I connected with as well. My mother's my primary influence. She had the Jet magazines and the Ebony okay. magazines laying around, you know, just like your mother did. So mm-hmm. it wasn't that she always sat me down and told me these things, but she had she made things available mm-hmm. in the environment that I had access to that I would just pick up and be curious about, and then I would learn things from mm-hmm. there, mm-hmm. you know, and um, you know, all your after school experience and parent advocacy and I just love that your experiences are very place-based they're very much so rooted in the hill district rooted in Homewood you know even with you know national international uh, influences like Stokely Carmichael coming and um, you know being inspired and influenced by that but your story is very much so um, a Pittsburgh story a hill district story a Homewood story like all these local connections so I think it was very important for everybody to hear that. Can I back up some, cause something I forgot? I That's think it's fine. like mm-hmm. very important to say about Dr. Barbara Sizemore, who yeah. was a professor here on Pitt's campus. Okay. And Barbara was one of my sheroes too. Yes, indeed. Cause she would go, if her students didn't show up her classroom, she would go to their dorm or go, your mama didn't send you to school to cut class. <laughs> and you know, she was just, I mean, she was so community uh, rooted, but, and with Barbara's studies across the country and then, looking at Pittsburgh, how bad things were for our children here. And so she pulled together a number of people. I, I, I think the first time we met, it was like 100 folks. And it was only a few parents there. I remember distinctly uh, Wanda Henderson. That's when I, I met her. Um, but Barbara pulled this organization again. We would meet on, we would meet on Pitt's campus. But um, she would said, okay, now what are we going to call this organization? And we couldn't think of one. And Barbara just came and she said, okay, advocates for African-American students in the Pittsburgh public schools. Mm-hmm. And so it started on this camp, you know, her calling the community together. We had educators from P- uh, PPS and people who, um, in other places like Rankin, where they were struggling um, with their school systems on behalf of their children. And then um, Barbara left and she said, well, Tominika, you and Wanda are going to have to keep this going. Mm. And so the advocates, we continued uh, meeting. We would meet in the, the Loman's home, um, the library in the hill. We, we met at, in that hill house. We met at different places. And then out of that came, um, and this started 30 years ago. We had been struggling mm-hmm. in an organized way on behalf of African-American students in Pittsburgh Public Schools that uh, Barbara Sizemore had has centered us around. See, and I didn't even know that she was a part of that story. Barbara started it. Yeah. She started it. Mm -hmm. And um, so that evolved into the equity advisory panel. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and you know, we have a a, a small group of volunteers, the equity advisory panel in uh, Wanda Henderson, shout out Women's Her Story Month, is is the uh, current chairperson. And, Wanda set in place. She said, well, we need to have an equity office. So that's how there's an equity office in the Pittsburgh Public Schools. Mm -hmm. But we have been struggling on behalf of our children in an organized way because we had to file a complaint against the Pittsburgh Public School District on behalf of our children with the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission. We didn't have money for an attorney to sue the district. So I I did want to interject that uh, about Barbara Sizemore and how uh, my involvement with with the advocates for African-American students, Pittsburgh Public Schools, and the Equity Advisory Panel. That's part of my community education. Yeah, community education. There it is. And I I also 
you know, thank you for sharing um, all those elements of your story. And I also think it's important for people to hear all those pieces because oftentimes when you see or know a person, sometimes you think it was just like one big splash or one big thing that happened and then they became the person that they are versus like, no, these are cumulative, you know, kind of pebbles on a journey, pebbles on a pathway, multiple events, multiple people pouring into a person or a person, you know, finding their passion and interest showing up and manifesting who they are, right? From parents and caregivers to community members to teachers and educators, you know, everyone, has this role, mm-hmm. you know, and um, thinking about just, I'm um, thinking about my son's own education and just how it just being in conversation with school officials and everything and just, you know, really sitting with the power that educators have and how the power and how they wield that power mm-hmm. can, you know, enrich and nourish a student's life or it can block them away from opportunities mm-hmm. that change their life you know, in negative ways. So it's really good to hear, you know, all of the people and saying the names of all these people who are a part of your journey. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. I thank them because so many people have poured into me and continue to pour into me, as well as parents. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes, you know, um, our parents don't have letters behind their name like a a BS or MSW or uh, a DR in front of it. But they have wisdom, and they the strongest thing they have is love for their children, mm-hmm. love for their children. And I think too often it's not respected mm-hmm. or recognized and that our parents are assets and their children are assets. Mm-hmm. Barbara Sosman used to say, parents, send, parents will send their children to school and say, I'm sending you what I got. Mm-hmm. So what you going to do? Yeah. You know, and... A lot of our parents don't know our, the schools are not designed for our children as a collective to be successful, mm-hmm. to love who they are, to be leaders uh, mm-hmm. and uh, change agents. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's designed for certain people, certain categories. But then I stay involved. I don't believe in um, the system because sometimes I look at uh, these public school systems as killing fields. Killing the spirits of our children, mm-hmm. but I stay involved and advocate on behalf because the masses of black children are there. That's right. And I feel I am obligated to be there on their behalf. Mm-hmm. I have to. That's right. That's right. Woo. All right. Let's get into Freedom Schools. All right. You all should, you can't see Medina's smile. That's one of the things <laughs> I love about it. She has this smile that's just. Oh. <laughs> blush I'm already blushing um I appreciate I mean it's just you know it's just such an honor to hear your story and witness your story and I'm just so excited that so many people are gonna hear it um so yeah let's get into freedom schools if you can tell us you know putting your freedom school look at you now look at your smile right now (laughs) if you could put on now I know you were the former director of Freedom Schools or project director of Freedom Schools, as well as the current always and forever ambassador of Freedom Schools. So if you can tell us um, about Freedom Schools in general and then your work with Freedom Schools specifically, and what do you consider to be the Freedom Schools way? Uh, I need to say that um, I'm a self 
self-proclaimed yes. ambassador of Freedom Schools. Mm-hmm. The national office did not say, Tomonika, this is what we want you to do. No, I, I'm, I'm self-proclaimed. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the model of Freedom Schools. I love Freedom Schools. It is one of the best experiences I've had in my life, uh, life-altering experiences. And um, when I first learned about Freedom School, because I was involved with um, Stanford Children, which is one of the divisions of the Children's Defense Fund, had received uh, some information in the mail, talked about other programs, and it mentioned Freedom School. And, okay, read carefully, because I didn't read carefully. I said, okay, this sounds great. Oh, but it doesn't include me. So I tossed it. They sent it the following year, and it said intergenerational. And what I did, I thought, oh, this is great. This sounds really good. So uh, I knew Malik, ba- Malik Bankston, who then was the executive director of the King's Association. I told him about it, took the information to him, and he read it. He said, hmm, this looks like something we might want to do. And uh, he said, but, you know, we can't do it alone. He reached out to Dr. Regina Holly, who was then principal of Lincoln School, and almost she said almost the identical thing. Hmm, this looks like something we might want to do. And so that was the beginning. It's a very long um, application process. It's arduous. I mean, it's a long, very detailed process. And uh, the cost of it, um, I was on another uh, webinar about Freedom School that was being presented. And the one brother said, stop saying that it's costly in terms of dollars and cents. Uh, But my thing is, invest now or pay later in terms of the cost. Um, CDF does a phenomenal job of training the project directors, um, the site coordinators, and the servant leaders. And I remember, and I'll just jump to it real quick, uh, we had to go to the farm. CDF had purchased the Haley Farm in Knoxville, Tennessee. And so we get to the airport. They have shuttle buses for us to take us to the farm. And I'm getting off the bus. Young man takes my hand, helped me off the bus. He said, welcome home. And I'm looking around. Who is he talking to? I have never been here before. I don't know what he's talking about. And um, so that was a, an experience in and of itself. And to be around other people who uh, love and care about children and the training, we would start early in the morning. We wouldn't get back to our hotels until midnight or whatever. So very, very... Um, uh, long time, but the partnership was formed between the King's Association and Lincoln School, and Dr. Holly had a lot going on at Lincoln, and she already had a summer program uh, for children who might need some, you know, brushing up or do to advance uh, in preparation for the upcoming school year. So she already had that summer program. What she added on was Freedom Schools, but what she said is, she said, "I want Freedom Schools to be a part." of everything. And so the other children, the other programs she had would uh, benefit uh, from Freedom Schools. And so the way CDF had a design is that you would have 10 scholars per classroom and per one servant leader. And the servant leaders, the training was just phenomenal. And so we had to um, find the servant leaders. And um, so that first year and going to different community meetings or whatever, and I would scout out. I would come on Pitt's campus. I would go to community meetings to try to find, and they would know who I was, um, trying to find the right you know, servant leaders or within the community or go to community meetings or just at the library. I would go different places just trying to find um, servant leaders. 
And can, can I can I ask you um, on the servant leaders training? Kind of what if you can what what you can remember? What was the trainings like? Okay, I never the project directors are not there with the servant uh-huh. leaders when they have their training. Mm-hmm. First, the project project directors get their training mm-hmm. and how to um, how to set up the program, what is needed, put everything in place. And then the project director would hire the site coordinator. Then the site coordinator would go separately from the servant leaders because they would have to get trained. Shout out to the EBTs, Ella Baker trainers. Mm-hmm. And I'm invoking the name Ella Baker, Women's Her Story Month. And so the EBTs would train the site coordinators and the servant leaders. But the servant leaders would be taught how to set up a classroom, how to work with the scholars, believing in the scholars. They would have the circle. To, um, all classrooms would have a circle. There would be a welcome sign. Um, you would have the scholars' names up on the walls. The decor would reflect who these scholars are, their culture and community. So they knew how to to set up the classroom. And they would have what's called um, IRC training, Integrated Reading Curriculum. And I meant to bring a curriculum book so I could show you, you could look at it. But um, there was a staff, uh, a group that would, who developed the IRC and select the books. And so it would show them about a lesson plan. They were taught how to deliver a lesson plan, almost like what teachers would do, Mm -hmm. using the KWL. and so the books will be selected. And so how do you present the book to the scholars? And so an important part of that, too, would be Harambe. They would, they would have long sessions about how to do Harambe. Harambe is Keith Ball Higley. It's like either come together, let's pull together. So Harambe is high energy. They're jumping up and down. You had this motivational theme song, uh, Something Inside So Strong, which I love. Um, and there's movement to that the cheers and the chants, and the servant leaders are jumping around doing the cheers and chants like Rock the Freedom School or Freedom School is red hot, uh, go Freedom Schools, go. Um, so it's a lot of different um, cheers and chants. And then so how do you deliver a story to children? And I love it. Oh, I love this. Story. And so the stories, not just you read the stories, but you act the stories out. So the servant leaders are acting the stories out. And I remember when I went for my training and Dr. Joan Parrott was then the, the national director of Freedom Schools. And I'm trying to think of the book. It's one of my favorite books. Um, the, the Eagles Who Thought They Were Chickens. And I mean, she went running around. You know, we're in this, in this lodge in the cafeteria room. And running around, she said, you know, I'm an eagle. I'm not going to let them catch me. But you ought to read it. Read The Eagles Who Thought They Were Chickens. So the servant mm-hmm. leaders would know how to deliver that and to look at our scholars' eyes in amazement, ah, you know. And so then after a while, they would engage the scholars. Sometimes the servant leaders and the scholars would read the story. Those scholars would act the story out. And so that's doing Harambe. You had a cheers and chants. You had read aloud um, and uh, recognitions and announcements. And like if it was somebody's birthday, you would call them out. We formed the uh, Soul Train line. And they would come down the middle and, you know, sing Happy Birthday, uh, Stevie Wonder style. Mm-hmm. Um, so Harambe, that starts today. I mean, to get ready for today. Mm-hmm. But the training, the IRC is an integral part um, of that. And so Freedom School starts. You, we, Our site, what we would do, we would uh, have a morning meeting with the staff coming at 730 in the morning. 
And I knew I had to be to be, I decided I would be there before them. But um, just to get ready for the day. And then breakfast, uh, CDF says, you know, you must have a site that has breakfast. Um, and uh, they need to have a nutritional meal and to have it with the scholars. Um, so that's a part of that. And then you would go into Harambe and we go through the whole thing, Harambe. And after Harambe, and I remember times, servant leaders, because it's in the summertime, it's a six-week program. We're outside or either in a gym doing Harambe. They would be soaking, with sweat just running down, mm-hmm. exhausted. Mm-hmm. And then they have to go do the IRC, mm-hmm. present the IRC to, to the scholars. And to see the scholars listening and learning and growing from it. And the way uh, CDF laid out how you are to present it so our servant leaders knew how to do that. And I remember our first site, we thought we were going to be at the Lincoln School building, but I think they had some kind of construction. Something came up, and we weren't able to be there. Dr. Holly arranged for us to go to um, a building in a school building in, in uh, Lawrenceville, and we got there, the servant leaders, we got there, and they knew how they were supposed to set their room up. And our first site coordinator, I'll never forget, and her face and everybody looked, we were in complete silence and like, what? Mm. And she said, okay, y'all, you know what we got to do. I'll never forget that. And so we had to make a way out of, it's not a way out of no way, but uh, you have to do what you got to do on behalf of the children. Mm-hmm. You know, and two of our site coordinator and one of our servant leaders went to um, Chatham and they stayed on campus. Or it might have been two of them, but I remember them having to walk up that long hill, but they would go to the library and get books for our scholars. Mm-hmm. Even though CDF, um, we had books for the IRC, but at the time we didn't have the books for, because um, part of the day was dear time, drop everything and read. Mm-hmm. So scholars would have books. So, you know, get things of interest to them. And they would, I would see them with lugs, the books on their back, and just going up that hill. I just love, I, I love these young people. Oh, yeah. So Freedom School is a special place. And so there are people trying to resurrect um, Freedom School across the country. Mm-hmm. And I have gotten way off track. What else did you ask me about? No, this? no, you're, you're fine because you're describing elements of Freedom School. And, um, well, um, what what grade range were um were the freedom schools for? Uh, we had um, well, there are different grade levels, but freedom schools actually went up to high school. Okay, and they actually had freedom schools inside of juvenile detention centers. Mm, I didn't know that. But our freedom school went from um, I think we had do we have first graders? No, we had level two, so we had three, four, and five grades three, four, and five. Okay. But one of the things I want to point out what Dr. Holly did, I was I would I pay close attention to a lot of things, but she had hired high school students to work with um, the, the children in her summer uh, program and reading to them, um, tutoring them, you know, and just relating to them. And one of the key things about freedom schools, it's not just the literacy, culture is an extremely important part of it because our children don't get that in traditional schools. Um, so our culture is very important. So the, the afternoon activities is very important. The books are very important. Literacy, yes, is very important. People know a lot about literacy. But the number one thing that Freedom School says, and Marion Wright Element 
made it very clear. What needs to happen is to build relationships with the scholars. That's first and foremost. And then literacy is secondary. That'll come along. Mm -hmm. And so our servant leaders knew how to do it. Mm -hmm. they, those EBTs taught them well. And when they come back from national training, they are ready. You know, it's time said they would call me uh, from national training. Miss House, guess what? Guess who was our presenter today? Guess who uh, was guest reader? Um, guess who did this? Guess who did that? Because Miriam Wright Edelman, she had was able to build relationships so she can call upon people like Jeffrey Canada. Uh, I mean, there were some, I have a list here of some of the ones that I remember. Uh, Dr. Greg Carr, um, uh, Vanessa Gibson, um, Charles Cobb, Bob Moses. Can you imagine Charles Cobb was the one who said, let's have Freedom School, mm -hmm. who, did, who would be there. Uh, uh, there were so many that um, were there, uh, Sonia Sanchez, Vincent Harding. Mm -hmm. I remember sitting right next to Vincent Harding in training. Mm -hmm. And what he said he wanted to do the next year. I said, that's good. I said, because I have Tennessee connection. I said, I thought we would hook up. But then he had taken ill, so I wasn't able uh, to meet him. Anthony Browder did phenomenal training with the servant leaders. Y'all had Anthony Browder. Yes. That was the first Nile Valley Contributions to Civilization. That was the first book that I I was in my Africa's Glorious Golden Age class at Berkeley High School, and we had to go pick a book mm -hmm. that resonated with us. Okay. And that was the book that I picked by Anthony Browder. He was there a number of times, and he did a training wow. session. And I didn't find out until years later what the training session was, because I think he had told them not to talk about it. Um, but it was a slave enactment coming over from the mid-Atlantic, mm -hmm. coming across that ocean mm. and experiences that they had. Mm -hmm. um, so that, yeah, he was there a number of times. Hollis Watkins, Pedro Nogueira, mm. uh, Sweet Honey in the Rock, uh, Kirk Franklin, um, Talib, uh, was it Talib? Kweli. Kweli, uh -huh. he was there, you know. So they had a, a number, Septima Clark, mm. um, there was a number of invited people, Charles Ogletree. There was a number of ones that they had. Um, Lerone Bennett. So it went on and on. Yeah. They got to see all, all of them. You know, the project directors, we didn't. Okay. But the site coordinators and servant leaders did. Gotcha. Yeah. So I got a follow-up question I'm curious about that's kind of connected here. Um, when you mentioned that you kind of went here, there, and everywhere looking for just the right servant leaders. In your mind, what were the qualities that you were looking for? Or when you think back on some of the servant leaders who worked with Freedom Schools that mm -hmm. you encountered and met and engaged with, what was it about them that you feel made um, great uh, servant leaders and um, did a really effective job at engaging our children in particular. CDF lays out the type of servant leader we need to try to hire. Um, I went off script a little bit, some of that, but one is to say to hire uh, college students. I've had college experience at least one year, they'd be 21 years of age or whatever. And um, I changed that up a little bit for myself. And but they have to be energetic, you know, because you do haram, but you cannot come in and just rock the freedom school, rock the freedom No, that you, you have to be high and rock the freedom school, rock the freedom school, mm -hmm. stop. You know, it, you just have to be high energy. Yeah. Um, you have to believe in the children. 
and believe in our scholars. And I have interviewed uh, some that said who would put our parents down or put the scholars down, like, mm, nah. <laughs> but uh, I did hire one that was like that. It, it, it changed. I, I saw some other things in that person. But to have that energy, uh, have a commitment. But with that training, what helps is that commitment. But a lot of times, first and foremost, and, and I would do my interviewing very, very different than maybe some other people would do. But um, so we know young people come, look, I'll come to make some money. Plain and simple. That's you know, and I could read through who is there just for the money, mm. and those who are there for something different. But you still have to work with that because you know everybody does need money to um, do what they have to do and do what needs to be done. But um, one is to have you know you're not going to always find somebody who is politically or culturally conscious, mm. and that's okay. But to have an open mind for that, uh, for them to learn that they're willing to learn and grow. Um, one that they can develop, if they don't already have it, develop a commitment. I have hired young people who weren't in college, um, but they were politically and culturally conscious. So for the rest of the staff, they needed that. So they were able to teach and share with that. Um, and so willingness to give. So there's a whole litany of things that you look for and a lot of times I just looked at an individual um, and someone uh, you would try to get uh, perhaps at least one person from the community that parents knew and recognized or the scholars recognized and what would that person be able to deliver to freedom schools and each year you should be able to get better um, and so there are some legacies that servant leaders and site coordinators and project directors have left for Freedom School. Mm -hmm. um, some of the things, amazing things that they have done, uh, some of the things they've done uh, that they don't think I know that they've done, <laughs> but they've done on behalf of the scholars. You know, so, you, know you, you can't have your favorites. You know, you shouldn't try to do this, don't do that, that sort of thing. But if something was in them, they're like, nah, I need to do this. So, you know, that was okay. But um, it's for them to grow, too. And a lot of people think Freedom Schools is just for the scholars. No, Freedom Schools says we need to have young leaders. So that's a part of it. So you try to select those who uh, you would hope they would go on after Freedom School and do some type of leadership. Mm -hmm. And the theme of Freedom Schools, I can make a difference and self, family, community, country, and world through, through hope, education, and action. So each week is one of those themes, and all the books are related to that weekly theme. Mm -hmm. And so we would hope also that our parents will become leaders um, and advocates. So those are things, too, because parent, we called up, we had to have weekly, your, uh, each site had to have, uh, weekly sessions with our parents and families. We called ours Parent Power because we wanted our families to understand you do have power. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe no one has ever told you that or you don't see it within yourself, and then we break off in small groups. And, and I do have to say how much the parents would say, uh, come up to the servant leaders, and I listen as they would talk with them or if they talk with me about how much they appreciated Freedom School 
and said they wish they had had those books um, when they were coming through school. They appreciated that the scholars got to take home a book a week. Mm-hmm. So either to add to the library that they had or to start their own library. Um, and not all scholars embrace reading. You know, we wanted them to, we want to, Freedom Schools is like to open up the world of reading to them, to have an interest in reading. Um, and I used to walk from, um, I guess it was, oh, from Kingsley, no, from Lincoln to Kingsley, back and forth, whatever, and I would take different routes. And a couple of times I would find a book from Freedom School on the ground. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if the scholar accidentally dropped it or just like let it go or whatever. But our parents really appreciated that. And I remember a couple of times we interviewed uh, parents and just no rehearsal or anything. Talk about dynamite. We're talking about Freedom Schools is dynamite. These parents were dynamite. To listen, see, just listen to our parents. They have a message, and school systems don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it meant a lot to them, too, you know. And um, I know some of the servant leaders, how they've gone on and uh, they started families and they used some elements of freedom school or those who become teachers. We have one who's a principal. Um, and just, you know, anecdotal things about the impact that uh, Freedom School has had. We have several attorneys, um, so yeah, yeah, I'm sure, and I'm sure, like just like you're talking about, just how you uh, talked about your journey and your story, and you named different, uh, you know, folks that you met and programs that you participated in. I'm sure with the servant leaders and site mm-hmm. coordinators, Freedom Schools is a step on their journey yeah. as well. They would name that. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Yeah, and some they they, they still do. Yeah. Um, one of our former, she was a servant leader, and then she became site coordinator, I think. And she said she was in Florida, riding with her uncle, and she was listening to a radio station, and someone that we both know had mentioned about Freedom Schools in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she said, "What?" And so she, she said, "Miss House, Miss House, guess what? Guess what? You know, I was in a car and I listened to somebody mention about uh, Pittsburgh Freedom Schools." So. Um, and there are other freedom schools who are doing great things. It's not just for um, black children, but essentially that primarily for African-American children. But there were um, Latino sites. Um, when I went down to training, uh, Philadelphia had, they, they called Congresso, and we say Congresso, and everybody just, you know. Mm. So uh, they got along really well. And so what they had to speak up and say on behalf of their children it's like, there are not enough books. These books are about black children. We need books about our children. Mm. And so CDF had to meet that. Um, I remember one time I went to training, and I would usually go by myself because a lot of sites, they had multiple sites, so only one project director. We only had one site here in Pittsburgh, and uh, what Kingsley led. Uh, but, um, and I noticed uh, two people sitting in a corner, and I just went over to them, and they were Vietnamese, and they were just like, just, I could tell they weren't feeling it. So I introduced myself, started talking to them. And this was after Hurricane Katrina. And she's this, and they were doing uh, Haram by Cheers and Chance. And um, she said, this will never work for us. This will never work for us. You know, because their culture is like very, very different. And lo and behold, didn't I find out, um, I was doing some research about freedom schools, and I found out um, the site that was in New Orleans, the Vietnamese site, he turned it into his culture. Mm-hmm. 
And the children were into it. V-I-E-T-N-A-M. And the other cheers and chants. And he made it, he related to their culture. So that's why the culture is such a very, very important part of Freedom School. So with our afternoon activities, I remember our first um, couple of years, we had Capueta, which is an African-Brazilian martial art. And when I went back after debriefed at National Training, they had never heard of Capueta. Uh, but we would have African dance. They were surprised. We had African dance. We had African drumming. We had chess, uh, yoga, uh, so many different activities uh, that we engaged, swim, and a lot of different activities that we had over the years, uh, afternoon activities, because that, that's a requirement of, of Freedom School. That's a day in the life of Freedom School. Thank you for joining us for part one of our In My Skin podcast episode featuring the dynamic Tominika Howes. Be sure to join us for part two for more.